If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This is Conspiranormal. All right, guys. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. Back in the basement. Yeah, back in the basement for the second time this month. It's amazing. Yeah, we're <laughs> back in the basement. Like like all good podcasters, right? At least it's not my mom's, you know. At least it's mine. <laughs> right, right. Right. So you guys can hear, we have a guest on the line. Uh, we've got somebody that we haven't had on for like two years, and that's Walter Bosley. Walter, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, man. It's been, it's been forever. I was looking at it yesterday to try to find out when the last time I had you on, and we had you on sometime in the summer of 2019 talking about Esoteric Napoleon. Ah, uh, yes. And, and, um, and yeah, it has been. 2020, just for, you know, for my reasons and everybody, you know, I think everybody, the same thing. 2020 now is just this weird blur that happened. It seemed like, you know, real quick, even though it didn't feel like it was real quick, you know, we were all, all going through it, but um, yeah, it's easy to forget that that big 12 month period, you know, boom is right in there in the middle of things. So it, uh, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me back guys. Yeah. Thanks for coming back. You know, it's been, uh, it's, it was a hell of a year for us too, you know, but, uh, understand that for you, it was, it was quite a year (laughs) and part of the reason why we haven't talked to you in a while, but we're glad that you're doing well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Had to just kind of withdraw, um, for a while and take care of the, uh, the medical issue there, the cancer, and that worked, and um, it's all good. And I'm glad to be back uh, in the action again. Yeah, as you say, you, you, we're glad that you're there to uh, to give the uh, the UFO people problems. So, Bosley, I'm going to be speaking at Contact in the Desert this year because, despite what some folks think, I'm I'm a believer in them flying saucers and. I've seen sure. a UFO and I, I think ETs are real and, and I'm very, uh, very glad to be asked um, again. It was canceled last year, of course, and was asked uh, to return and I'm looking forward to that. So I, I do enjoy the topic. I do enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Same here, even though it does get crazy at times. Sure. Uh, for obvious reasons. Well, I hear that like, uh, What's the latest thing I heard that like the 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 uh, Tom DeLonge's group is is no more essentially? Mm-hmm. I heard. I've that, heard uh, the same thing. Yeah, that that's not that that's not happening anymore. Uh, honestly, to tell you the truth, with everything that was going on in 2020, 
I really didn't pay much attention to the UFO <laughs> world. <laughs> How did you survive? I, I don't think I know, a lot of I people know. did. You know, I think people yeah. had their minds on uh, various other things besides the two big ones. And um, and I think I, I think with what was going on um, uh, politically. And with the COVID thing, uh, that seems to have really um, come to the forefront and taken over the alternative research, you know, discussion, right? right? Because everybody was trying to figure out exactly what was going on. Was was this a conspiracy? Was that you know? So UFOs, you're right. UFOs took a took a big backseat. Um, it was it was kind of interesting. Well, kind of gave think- everyone a breather. I think when they were doing not this stimulus, but the one in between the $600 one, I think that there was some discussion about uh, funding for UFO research. And that was a big thing all over UFO Twitter. And I was just kind of like, okay. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait, were, were they saying that that's why our stimulus was lower? <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think it had anything to do with that. Okay, I, I wouldn't put it past them to come up with a right. theory like that. Right. But it was just, it was something that was in the bill, apparently, out of all the other things that were in the bill. Oh, that's right. This was the disclosure is coming now crowd. And always. And of course, yeah. This disclosure is always, is always right around the bend, right? And weren't we, weren't we laughing about this and saying it wasn't going to happen the last time we talked and the time before that and the time before that. <laughs> yes. And, and yet when you do, you get comes down and you get these people that they get all angry and frustrated. And yet here we are uh, yet another year or year or so have, has passed. And we still don't have that disclosure year after year. Well, it's funny, Walter, I always liken it to the kind of like evangelical, uh, apocalypse crowd mm. that it just always seems like it's right around the bend. It's always coming. You always have to revise the date. Uh, it's twenty. It's twenty fifteen. It's twenty twenty. Oh, it's twenty twenty five. Well, that's been every year since. Oh, it's twenty twenty five. Right. Exactly. So you are working on another book right now. Yes, I am. I'm and continuing a book that I had to. Um, stop working on in the middle of for obvious reasons last year. And I, I'm working on uh, getting that one finished so I can go on to the next one. Yeah. And that's uh, you're coming up with the fifth secret missions book. Yes. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, because like, cause it's been so long since we've had you on, there may be some people in the, in the audience that are not familiar with you. Let's talk a little bit about like, you know, the, 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 the secret missions books and like, uh, what you talk about in these books. And, and if anybody is also interested, you can find where I've pretty much have interviewed Walter, like just about every book that you've written, Walter, I think we've done an interview on. So you guys can go back in the archives. If you want more description of what's going on in these books, you can, but. Well, basically the secret missions books started out as um, a one-off uh, it, it was just a book that I had just finished the Empire of the Wheel trilogy. And that was a very intense seven years of my life as far as that, you know, the research and the strange synchronicity and the, just all the weird stuff that went on during the time that I was researching those books. And um, I wanted to do something. I just wanted to work on something that was completely different. 
Um, so I had been gathering and collecting, stumbling upon, you might say, uh, information about Juan Cabrillo, the Portuguese explorer who for Spain was commissioned by Spain to explore what's called Alta or Upper California, which is today the, the state of California, the United States. And he, he, he's credited with being the first European to lead an expedition to, you know, give a, do an exploration on what we call California today. And I thought it was just going to be the one book. And basically the, the, the premise is you have um, a historical figure, this famous explorer Juan Cabrillo, um, and you have some, you know, interesting little connections, for instance, the Templar connection. And um, that led to the potential Joan of Arc um, connection, specifically her sword. And it, just this really interesting mix. And, it, it, you know, and there's California. In, in the middle of it. And so, you know, I did this book and um, while, after I finished it, right after I finished it, I thought, well, you know, um, uh, I had to consider, you know, some other figures, you know, maybe, maybe do another one of these. And I happened to have been reading about Sir Richard Francis Burton a uh, particular thing about one of the books he'd written. And I learned something I didn't know because I'd been a fan of Burton for a long time at that point, several years. And uh, I had learned that um, when he went to South America, the there was a period of four and a half months where he was missing. And nobody knows to this day exactly where he was. And what's weird is there's not a word written about it in any of his journals or his own writings. Now, Burton was a man who wrote profusely about everything he did, every expedition, everything. And for there to be a four and a half month gap in his writings, that was highly suspicious to me. And then when I saw that he was in the middle of the South American wilderness during this time, and nobody knew exactly what, what he was doing, well, wow, that right there, that was screaming for me to look at. And dig into. So I did. I spent five months. Um, my full-time job, seven days a week, was just reading, reading, reading. I, I consulted over 90 books. I read, um, I, I drew from, or I, I think I read 50, 50 or 60 books in that process, cover to cover. And uh, consulted, you know, an additional 20 some, just an enormous amount of material. I think there's um, uh, 70 something books in the bibliography. But I spent, you know, four or five months just doing pure research, taking notes. And then I jumped into writing the book. And, and it's one of the books I'm most proud of, to be honest, the, the Secret Missions to Lost Expedition of Sir Richard Francis Burton. I'm very proud of that book because I did a lot of work on it. Um, a lot of scholarly work, and uh, I, I think it has some of my best ideas and proposals. So as I was researching that book, though, before I wrote it, I stumbled upon um, a, a, a theory about Ambrose Bierce, another guy who I've admired, but I didn't know as much about as I knew about Burton. And it was such an interesting story, and it had to do with the, the infamous Crystal Skull, uh, you know, stuff. And um, which is a mixed bag. And I, so I set aside what I, I had read about Beers and the Crystal Skull. 
I finished the Burton book and then I went back to the Bierce material and uh, realized, oh, wow, okay, I've got to dig into this and this is definitely worthy of a book because Ambrose Bierce is probably just as famous for having completely disappeared after uh, riding into Mexico on horseback in 1913. And he, he just disappeared. Nobody ever had contact with him after one letter, one last letter that had been written and nobody's ever found his remains. It's, it's a big, huge mystery. Um, but, you know, I realized, well, I've got another book in this series, you know, and, and so by that time I realized, wow, three books, I, th I think I've got a series concept here. And, um, you know, I had been interested in Napoleon because of some uh, curious things about the Louisiana Purchase. And of course, the legendary tale that he had spent a night in the pyramid and had a weird experience. So I thought, you know, I've been wanting to dig into the Louisiana Purchase, but really I need to just dig into Napoleon. And so I, I was thinking about it. I went and visited a, a buddy of mine in the Midwest and in a used bookstore, I found a copy of a book from the 1940s, I think, uh, titled uh, Bonaparte in Egypt. Right. Mm -hmm. And I had heard of this book, but I scooped it up. I read it. And once I read that, I realized, oh, my God, this is the next one. So um, I got into that and I realized I can't I can't fit all there is to say about Napoleon from this perspective um, in the one volume. So I decided, OK, this has got to be a second volume. And uh, so I'm four books into this series, a series concept, which I have to admit, I just love. Um, it's one of my favorite things I've come up with, <laughs> to be honest. And, and that's from the perspective of being a writer and a researcher. I enjoy looking into this stuff. I enjoy writing about this stuff because exploration and, and, you know, adventure, they're two of my favorite things, you know, to read about and study and such. And I finally decided um, that I needed to fill some gaps because these figures, um, they're all, and this is the concept of the series. You take one of these legendary explorers or an individual like Ambrose Beers, Napoleon, and what they have in common is they are all men who seemed when you, just from the outset, when you read about their lives, they seem to have had um, some private interests in uh, uh, well, not so private in ancient history and things like that, but, a, but a, a deep interest in things like lost civilizations. And it appears that when you look at the events and the activities of their lives, that they were all looking for the evidence of the traces of these lost civilizations. Hence See, the and secret the, mission. Yeah, and uh, thus the secret mission, because they either kept it to themselves, a private agenda, or to some degree, they were actually sent to um, look at these things. As in the case of Burton, I believe, I, I think he was doing some of what I suspect on behalf of British intelligence, you know, for example. But um, he was personally deeply interested in this. And, and, and that's really what the series is about until you get to this new one, the fifth book. And that's where I'm trying to fill in the, the gaps to give the reader a chronological context because I didn't write them in historical order. But um, I, I, I want the reader to be able to go back and say, OK, here's the context of, you know, from Cabrillo to Napoleon to Burton to Bierce, mm -hmm. the context they were living in. Here's the things that were going on along the lines of what's in the book between 
you know, their, their times on the stage. And that's what number five is about, but also answers some unanswered questions about some of these individuals. And so unlike the other ones, it's not going to be based on a particular person. Right. It, it answers. um, I think I know what happened to Cabrillo and where he ended up. And I go into that. Um, I, I go into the very interesting character I made of, may have talked about i think yeah i might have talked about him with you guys jan pataki the author of a manuscript uh, found in saragosta um which is a book and a, and a film from that a polish film from that from 1965 but the book was written in the early 19th century pataki was of the napoleonic era fascinating figure i go into him a bit um in this book and um you know, like I said, I just I just kind of fill in the historical context, but the big old fat part I'm still in the middle of finishing it is that there seems to me to be some um, ancient mystery uh, in California that I think the Templars became aware of after the Fourth Crusade. I think Juan Cabrillo was aware of. Um, I think Sir Francis Drake was aware of it. Um, and I, I, I have this particular hypothesis about California from that perspective, but also what certain factions were, um, in my opinion, they were struggling over control of California, dating back to, you know, the Templar times on up to the present. And so I'm trying to lay that out in this book, you know, that, that basic idea. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of a sprawling Um, you know, it also talks about the common threads that run through all the secret missions books and all my other books as well. Um, so it's this big sprawling, you know, kind of, um, I wouldn't call it encyclopedic, but, uh, it's kind of a necessary, a necessary volume because, um, it, it just fills in some gaps and gives a little more information that, uh, based on research I've done since I wrote those first four. I really enjoyed all the books. Uh, I don't remember you. T- I really don't remember you talking about Juan Pataki, though. I don't remember that part. Well, do you think that there were Templars in the United States in what later became the United States? Oh yeah, yeah. I think um, I think they started coming over here. You know, d- during the Henry Sinclair times. I, it, basically, I I'm a proponent of the theory, and it's not original with me, but. Um, during that fourth crusade, when instead of going on to the Middle East, they decided right. to uh, sack Constantinople. Right. And at that time, they the theory is that they captured, seized uh, documentations and ancient charts, documents, manuscripts, ancient charts and maps and portalons, as they call them in some cases, from the imperial archives. And these were a lot of documents and charts that had been in the Library of Alexandria prior to that. And in these documents, of course, was uh, information and maps and charts about what went on to be called the New World, the Americas, at a time when, you know, according to, you know, our history books, Europeans. Um, and so uh, that suggests that, of course, the, you've heard the theory that the Templars were doing secret expeditions over here to the Americas for Oh, a couple of uh, a couple of hundred years before Columbus 
definitely awareness and probably 150 years uh, period of time before the 1492 expedition. Some even suspect that Columbus actually made a clandestine trip here first uh, in 1485. And um, so, yeah, I, I do definitely think that uh, the Templars and, and others, you know, but um, definitely the Templars um, made it to America based on these secret maps and charts before Columbus. And beyond just the existence of the landmass over here, you think there were, there was other knowledge that they're privy to uh, knowledge that, that later led a lot of these uh, figures that you have written the series about to, uh, look for things in particular uh, in the Americas. Yes, yeah, um, especially where San Francisco Bay is concerned. We are told, get this, we're told that um, the Juan Cabrillo expedition led by Cabrillo, we're told that a man who um, scared the hell out of his crews because he was sailing tight against the uh, the, the, the coastal line this is north of Santa Barbara and just south of San Francisco Bay, where there's cliffs. If you've ever been down the PCH, the Pacific Coast Highway, you'll know what I'm talking about. But this is a man who would hug the, uh, the coastline so closely that he was scaring the hell out of his crews because they thought he's going to crash the ships into this cliff. And we're told that um, they sailed right past the mouth of San Francisco Bay but found the mouth of the Russian River and stopped there. And then not, they, they didn't miss San Francisco Bay once. Oh, no, we're told that Cabrillo missed it twice because coming back down, hugging the shore, he misses the San Francisco Bay again. Well, I don't buy that for a minute. Um, I think he indeed, uh, if, if you've ever been to San Francisco, you know, been out here to the Bay Area, um, that's a pretty big big enough gap okay of open seawater to miss when you're looking for remember they're always looking for the northwest passage okay all of these expeditions which means when you're going up the pacific coast of north america you're going to make a a right turn okay (laughs) an eastward turn or if you're coming south it's going to be a left turn and when you're looking for that big huge passage of water that makes that eastward turn and you come up hugging the coastline um, out of uh, Monterey and, and all, Big Sur Monterey and all that, and, and you come up to San Francisco Bay, that opens wide up, particularly if you know, you're in a ship the size they were in and, and going the speed they were going. You're not going to miss how that opens up. Now, if you're looking for that eastward turn, you're going to make that turn into the open mouth of the San Francisco Bay. So that, you get the point. The point is that there's no way Cabrillo missed San Francisco Bay. Now, especially when you learn, as you dig into the logs of the expedition, you learn that Cabrillo's ship, the flagship, the San Salvador, it was, and I'm putting air quotes on this word, it was separated, lost from the other two ships in the expedition because of a, you know, because of weather, we are told. And uh, I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. They're separated for like, I think three or four days. Right. 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 <laughs> and well, plenty of time for Cabrillo to slip into San Francisco Bay with the flagship, do kind of a recon, sail around the whole bay. Right. And then come back out. 
and then, you know, coming down. Who is generally attributed with discovering San Francisco Bay? Was it Drake? Uh, well, no, Drake's Drake was popularly credited with it for a while, but there's some controversy. He, he may, I, I think Drake also, by the way, did the same thing Cabrillo did. I, I don't think Drake obviously didn't miss San Francisco Bay. And I think he found and reconned the real San Francisco Bay, but Drake was on, he, he's excellent subject for a book, but his expedition was kind of, there were parts of it that remain classified, get this for 400 years. He was angry at Queen Elizabeth in his lifetime for not letting him uh, speak about having gone around Alaska up into Arctic waters. We are told that in, in academia and school books, we're told that, you know, he went up to, you know, probably uh, uh, Oregon, Washington, something like that, and then made a left turn and headed, you know, back southward to Japan. But actually what he did, this is, there's a book um, by Samuel Balfe called The Secret Voyage of Sir Francis Drake. And it talks about how the uh, facts were declassified. There were certain things declassified that came out in the 1990s that proved that Drake actually went all the way through, um, went around Alaska, what we call Alaska today, of course, into Arctic waters, looking for the Northwest Passage. But Queen Elizabeth would not let that be publicized at the time. So I think I think Drake certainly did go into the, um, and I say that in secret missions five but um i believe officially it might be viscaino viscaino um was the spanish explorer who well explorer for spain who did the uh, essentially copied no i'm sorry i apologize about that i talk about that in this book believe it or not viscaino also allegedly misses san francisco bay so we're told this BS story about all these guys missing it. So off the top of my head, I can't recall who was actually credited with it. But uh, Viscaino is the guy who, who followed Cabrillo's exact route and then changed all the names. Like San Diego was originally San Miguel. Right. And, and Viscaino says, now nah, I'm calling this San Diego. So if we've got several people missing the San Francisco Bay Area, and then all of a sudden somebody is actually the person that takes credit for it or whatever – is there a lot of, well, I guess for lack of a better term, are there a lot of secret missions being done by these, uh, by these guys under the flags of these different countries? I think, um, oh yeah, there's a lot of activity that uh, part of the expeditions remain classified in, in these cases. And this all has to do with, in my opinion, gold. Um, I go into, in Secret Missions 5, I go into the old books that there was there were ancient sources um, that of course were part of the material seized in the fourth crusade. But then there was literature that was written at the time of the age of exploration, wherein this information was embedded within fiction. And it is known that some of these guys had copies of these works. And um, I I go into specifically what I think these guys were looking for in San Francisco Bay and why they all keyed in on San Francisco Bay. And it's because of the primarily the search for gold that they were keeping the secret, right? They, they, they were yeah. trying to keep it as secret as possible, but it was something that's over in the East Bay area that, um, 
has to do with when you when you're starting to get over towards like where Berkeley is and all that. And um, it, it's it's a geophysical thing. I think that they were first looking for um, before the uh, before the land expeditions. Remember, these guys were just doing recons by boat. I think a lot of people don't think of the conquistadors as being parts of secret societies, but they definitely oh had gosh. secret societies, and they may have you know had some of this information from from those. Well, I, I exactly, and that's I go into that from the very first volume of the Cabrillo book. Um, I talk about uh, the the Hidalgo culture. Now, the Hidalgo culture, these were, you know, basically most people, you know, it's like, oh, well, those are noblemen and, and you know, the, the upper crust class. But specifically to be Hidalgo, you had to either yourself have been knighted or be the descendant of a knight. Now, if you were the descendant of a Templar, okay, they would call you, or this is where the term originally came from. They would call you Hidalgo de Sangre, knight mm-hmm. by blood. And the reason they would they came up with that was because this was the era when the Templars had been disbanded and they weren't supposed to be together anymore, right? And uh, for a while, right, um, it was illegal to display their famous red cross, the cross pate. Uh, their specific but, cross symbol. But in Portugal, they just changed their name. Exactly to the Order of Christ. So um, if if you if you were called Hidalgo, that was one thing. But if you were known to be Hidalgo de Sangre, you you were known you were considered a and known to be by record and blood a descendant of a Templar knight. And a lot of these guys were um, Juan Cabrillo, Hidalgo de Sangre. Um, you know, and so therefore, and I lay this out, I go into the detail in Secret Missions 5 um, a little bit more than I did in the Cabrillo book. Yes, exactly. These guys would have had access to these uh, ancient charts and documents and manuscripts that have been seized during that crusade and kept by the Templars and passed down. Um, Christopher Columbus, you know, was himself Hidalgo de Sangre, it appears. Where are you getting this whole idea that um, Columbus explored in 1485? Where does that come from? Seems that I've heard this before. Yeah, it's it's in um, it's in all the the recent scholarship because um, a particular map. Um, gosh, and I apologize, I can't remember the name of that map, but there was a particular map of Columbus's and a book of Columbus's that um, has, they've, they've been authenticated and the scholarship into that map and those books um, has led some scholars looking into this to um, suspect that in 1485, when he, there, he, he had taken an expedition in 1485, gone on an expedition, they know that for a fact. Um, conventional wisdom was that he didn't go as far as he probably did in, in which now they understand in light of uh, the, this recent map that I'm talking about. And um, so it's still, it's still not settled. So, you know, you can't say for sure, 
I think he did based on the scholarship that I have seen. Uh, to me, it seems logical and rational, um, you know, before you go putting on the dog and pony show expedition, you know, why not go check it out with one boat, a smaller crew, and just to be sure you're right. Yeah, kind of my opinion on Apollo 11, not to go off on that. And I don't want to go off on that, but I have the same opinion of Apollo 11. To me, the big secret, you know, isn't that we didn't go, which is stupid, um, you know, or this, that, and the other. I think the big secret is, is that we actually did it before Apollo 11 to make sure we could do it before yeah, putting on the dog and pony show. I this think is kind of more the secret space program kind of stuff. Yeah, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, it, that's that's kind of a connected thing. But yeah, I, th I think Columbus had done it in 1485. Um, the theory is that he didn't make landfall. The theory is, is that he went as far, he went far enough to see the land and confirm that the land was there, that, that the first one that he made landfall on was indeed the 1492 expedition. But in 1485, it is now suspected by many that um, he, he, he at least had a land sighting of the Americans. So about Richard Francis Burton, um, you know, have you, have you read or looked at uh, Graham Hancock's idea about the America before that yeah. book? I read a little bit of probably about half of that book and yeah, it makes a pretty compelling case that there was this kind of like ancient civilization there in the Amazon at one time. And this is exactly what Burton and what later Fawcett are looking for. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, as you know, in my Burton book, I, I point out um, with the facts and the, the, the uh, documents and stuff to back it up. Fawcett's search for Z was, you know, dependent upon what Burton had done. Um, Fawcett, in one of his own journals, says that he relied on, he talks about Manuscript 512, which the first English translation was done by Burton's wife. I yeah. think Burton had a hand in the translation. But it was, it was done by Burton's wife, just like Burton goes to South America to begin with and Fawcett was that was, was translated from Portuguese by like, I think it was written by a, by a Franciscan or something. Well, no, it was written by the commander of, um, uh, of an ex of an expedition that had been exploring the area and was one of the people that found this city. Um, and, uh, uh, came back, wrote up the report and it sat in the, uh, archives in Rio de Janeiro for, Let's see. It was 1753 when he wrote it, and it was in it. It was in the uh, the Portuguese archives until you know the the. It was 1865 or six, I think, when Isabel Burton did the first English translation. So, um, it, it was kind of an unknown document, except to you know certain people like Burton and such, but. Um, uh, you know, Fawcett, his whole thing was, I think if we can pinpoint what Burton was actually doing, and if I'm right, if he was in the areas that I think he was in, um, I think basically Fawcett was following up 
on what he had learned through British intelligence that Burton had found. Now, whether Burton went to Fawcett's actual same lost city of Z, I think he found one of the cities and uh, it was definitely the same lost civilization. Um, I, I think Burton, and I agree with this, uh, in 1860, Burton came to the United States and he very specifically, after touring back east, he very specifically went to Salt Lake and spent a few weeks and uh, was given some information. And I personally think that uh, Burton thought that um, the that the, the section in the Book of Mormon talking about the uh, the their kind of lost civilization, the, the cities that when they came over from Israel or wherever it was they came from, actually, uh, when they came here and established their civilization long ago, I think Burton suspected that these ancient ruins um, going so far back, that there was some truth to that. You know, I don't think he bought Joseph Smith's religious part of all that for one minute. Burton was a smart guy on that stuff, but I think he thought there was something to this stuff that um, Smith was told that he read in these golden plates. And so he goes to Utah and then a few years later, he gets himself assigned to South America. And um, when you look at his writings and such, and when he disappeared, he was all over this area where Fawcett says the city of Z was. Now, I'm not the first guy to say this, but I agree with it. I talk about it in the Burton book. One of the cities mentioned in the Book of Mormon that these ancient, you know, Mormons who came over from the Middle East established in South America was called Zarahemla. Well, hello, you know, um, everybody wonders, you know, oh, Fawcett and his lost city of Z, what did the Z stand for? He never identified it. Well, I think what Fawcett was looking for was Zarahemla, the ancient so-called Mormon city of Zarahemla. Yeah, did I he think that's ever, what Burton was looking for, too. Did he ever identify as a Mormon? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Who, okay. Burton or Fawcett? Neither one that I'm aware of. But he was in um, Salt Lake City, so he probably had some contacts or was influenced somehow. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, he wanted to go there because by that time, Burton was well known. And, um, uh, oh gosh, what's the guy's name? Oh, uh, Brigham Young. I'm sorry. Yes. Brigham Young. Uh, he he had been a frontiersman. So he, uh, it's interesting when, when Burton arrived and they had their private meeting, their first meeting, Brigham Young had maps of Africa and was able to, you know, show Burton, you know, he traced Burton's, all of Burton's expeditions. He talked about, he goes, yes. And then you went here and you went there and he was a huge fan of Burton and they had, uh, they had a lot in common. Young was not one of those prudish, uh, churchianity kind of guys by any means. He was a very practical down to earth guy. And um, it's very, you know, interesting. They, they spent some time, you know, being able to talk by themselves. And uh, so they, they got along really well. They hit it off. And, um, you know, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. What's born out of something like that is you could see young saying, Hey, let me show you what we got in our vault here about, you know, these ancient cities or what we think about them or whatever. So I, I totally think Burton went to Utah to pick their brains about this ancient city stuff. Right. Because Joseph Smith was probably tapping into, well, I mean, he obviously was tapping into a lot of um, things that had, uh, you know, ideas that had already existed. And then people were, 
you know, coming to him and bringing him artifacts all the time. And then there developed that competing um, view of whether the Book of Mormon events took place uh, in the Midwest up here or uh, down in the the Yucatan and South America. So like it started kind of moving towards South America for a while. Um, So you had a lot of Mormon activities, archaeology um, in in a cooperation with the a lot of the the mexican government and other south american governments too absolutely absolutely and that and that's you're right that's what they were looking for themselves now you have that huge um mormon presence in northern new mexico now too that's a result of this you know this this research and their organizations their churches archaeology and of course burton you know, being a foremost expert on this stuff in his lifetime, of course, he's going to know, you know, what he's going to have heard, you know, through the grapevine and through publications and such, um, what they, what they believe and what they think was there and what they were looking for. So I think that's why he, the, the main and only reason why he really went to Utah was for this. Did not expect the, the Mormon connection to come up. <laughs> It always does. It always does. Well, it's, and, and you know, a lot of times you bring it up and people, uh, they snicker, they go, oh, come on, you don't believe that. It's like this. I, no, I, I, I don't, all, all the religious part of Joseph Smith's shtick, his thing, that, that doesn't interest me. Okay. Um, and his, his version of the story where the angel came to him and took him to the golden blades. I don't know about that either. Okay. Uh, what I think, what I think is, there is a nugget of truth buried in the stuff relative to this, the, the ancient part of the story. When you, when you're talking about the, you know, Oh, they came over in their big round wooden ball shaped ships and they came to the Americas and they established the civilization. I think what you said hits the nail on the head there. You know, I, I think there was this ancient lost civilization. I think people were finding artifacts and I think at some point Smith was exposed to these artifacts and maybe some, some an, an old document or something. Okay. And then of course he built his Mormon thing, his version of it um, on that. But the nugget of fact, I think is um, to be found in the parts of the book where um, uh, certain things where it talks about the lost civilization, that's what interests mm-hmm. me. And that's where I think that nugget of truth is. And then depending how you look at it, uh, Mormonism came under pretty heavy influence from Freemasonry later, or certain Freemasons were vice versa influenced by Mormonism. Um, So there was there was something to that, too, like a, a, a bringing together of some of those similar ideas. Yeah, Smith was a big fan of Freemasonry, obviously, and uh, you know, uh, he, he certainly would have incorporated um, any Masonic ideas about, you know, lost ancient history into his thing and his interests. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Plus his career as a treasure hunter, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, a seer, so to, a lot speak. to do Remember he would, right. he would dabble right. with the seer stones where he'd put them in that hat, and put his face in the hat and claim that he would, you know, saw stuff. And then uh, he made that device where um, you wore it on your chest and it, it had the like goggles connected to it. Yeah. <laughs> it just all sorts of 
all sorts of fun stuff. Folk magic, yeah. Mm-hmm, exactly. Walter, you mentioned something when you were talking about the Napoleon book. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned this because you mentioned the Louisiana Purchase and looking into that. And whenever I think you had posted that you, the, the next um, – what the next Secret Missions book was going to be for part four, I had actually, I think, on your Facebook uh, – on that Facebook post, I said, what are you going to do Meriwether Lewis? I thought that's what you were going to do. But, uh, I mean, is there any tie-in to that with the Louisiana – of what you were looking at for the Louisiana Purchase before Napoleon? Well, I am – uh, definitely, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely a fan of the idea that, well, not that it's a good thing, but I, I agree with the idea that he was murdered and that there was some skullduggery galore going on with Meriwether Lewis, uh, definitely. Yeah, you know, that, that side is not too far from here. Yeah, it's about 30 minutes away. And I, I definitely think that, you know, there, there's some true mystery there. Um, and I think it does have with the expedition and, you know, the purchase and the expedition. Now I go, I, I went into that a little bit in the first volume of the Napoleon, of the esoteric Napoleon book. Um, I get into the, um, the question of, uh, the, uh, the banker, Nicholas Biddle, who, um, Biddle was hired to write the book from the journals of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Yeah. He was the one that was later involved in Jackson trying to close the bank. Exactly. The whole central bank thing. And and there was some real controversy there. And, you know, it, it looks like Biddle was, you know, just on the side of the central bankers. And um, I, I suspect I haven't fleshed it out totally, but I go into it a little bit in the first volume that's already published done and published of Esther Napoleon, I go into maybe, you know, what were some of his motives? What were they trying to hide? You know, did he take on this job of, of writing the, um, the book from the journals so that he could pick and choose what would be reported publicly in those journals so that some things could be hidden. And this ties into um, as I'm talking about in Secret Missions 5, I go into this a little bit. It goes into the whole um, alchemy of money, so to speak, uh, which is an interesting subject um, that has to do with the control of resources throughout history and such. And I suspect that Biddle was one of these guys. And it's possible that um, one of the possible reasons that Lewis could have been murdered was this banking and, and money alchemy skullduggery to use that word again um, it could also have had to do with um, finding um, real serious evidence of the lost civilization and somebody not wanting that to get out uh, so I don't try to solve the Meriwether Lewis mystery because that's that's a series of books in itself I think right. but I do go into it and address it um, uh, more in uh, the esoteric Napoleon volume two. Can you tease that, that idea of the alchemy of money a little bit? It's, yeah, uh, it's, um, it, oh, it, it has to do with, uh, and, and if you're familiar with Joseph Farrell, he, he, yeah. he th- this is more of his bailiwick. Um, I touch on it in my stuff just to show you, 
how the, how the players, what their motives were and their, their connections. But it, it has to do with why this is an interesting thing that Joseph points out uh, really well in, in a couple of his books, how um, the West valued gold, the East valued silver, mm. and how this was a contrived thing, how the guys who really controlled money agreed that, okay, this half of the world, you know, you guys are going to value everything on silver and that's what you're really going to, you know, look for with your mining and stuff. And, and the West, the Western hemisphere, whatever, for lack of a better term, it's going to be gold. And what they did was they came up with a system to balance these off each other, to, to work these off each other, to keep the values of each silver and gold uh, respectively, um, high in their respective parts of the world. So they manipulated the values through this gold and silver system, but also it gets into the literal alchemy, the literal alchemy of actually manufacturing gold, okay, from, you know, from the materials of the earth. But uh, uh, that led to this is hypothetical, of course, that leads to an understanding of geophysical terrain so that you could look at a mountain range, for example, you could read that terrain and you can identify, oh, there's going to be gold there and there and there. Now, Seshari in his book, No Longer in Print, which I published years ago, um, he argues that the California gold rush was a completely contrived, the gold strike of 1849 was a completely contrived event that they had known where this gold was long before that. And when it was decided that the United States wanted California, the California territory, that's why the gold strike, you know, suddenly happens so that they could have this big influx of population because it was invasion by population essentially. And um, so, so, but going back to what the alchemy of money, the alchemy of the gold is all about, they knew that gold would be found, you know, in Sutter's, on Sutter's uh, field or something, uh, mill or whatever. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Sutter's mill. Yeah. Yeah. There, because there was the Sutter range, which is interesting. I talk about that in the book and, and such, but um this would have been one of the things that I think uh, they were looking for, these explorers were looking for when they went into San Francisco Bay and they had reason to suspect where to look. And that was one of the things that was in either the ancient documents seized um, in the Fourth Crusade and then or embedded in literature of the day. And I go into that in detail, but it has to do with, to answer your question, to flesh that out, it has to do with um, uh, uh, controlling values, okay, uh, but also knowing how to make the gold, but knowing how to read the terrain to see where you're going to have the gold strikes. And of course, that's a very valuable bit of knowledge to have there. <laughs> so that's I, why I, it would have been kept clandestine. I guess with Farrell, that there is a certain amount of. Uh looking at the vent like the venetian nobility yes. oh, yeah. that that's involved and kind of like this hidden history of money yes but like also there too alter i mean there's this there's these all these connections in your work to all the like uh to current 
and then to the airship mystery and Del Shao. Um, you know, so that's all kind of going on at the same time. You, you know, you mentioned 1849 is the gold rush. What was it? Del Shao. Does that sometime in the 1850s and he right. names that they're working on these airships and, so is this about like a secret sources of wealth? Uh, yeah, because of this knowledge. And it, it all comes back to this particular secret knowledge that has to do with being able to reading the terrain. And yes, um, Sashiri goes into this in the handprint of Atlas, how the um, so-called world grid, the, the telluric energy grid of the planet um, plays into um, all of this. And um, if, if you... If you can, if you know where these lines are, okay, and if, if you're aware of the world grid, you can use that to lead you to these places where the gold is. Um, I, and I talk about that in uh, volume five as well of the series because um, the, the Sutter's Mill area, okay, and the Sutter Range, all of that is in kind of almost tight into the uh, angle of two intersecting world grid to alert currency lines major lines okay so and, and that's no surprise um t- to anyone who you know looks into this stuff and looks at it so if they uh, in any way understood how to read the terrain and identify where these to alert currents were then they could uh, more easily find the spots where the gold's going to be found and then that wealth uh, allows the development of, of these kind of breakaway civilizations in the, in the breakaway thing, but even with any, with any society, with any civilization, you right. know, that's why there was a, I, I, I go through and get the basic hypothesis of the, the real struggle for control of California. It starts with the Templars then the, between the Templars and the Catholic church. And then, uh, you know, here comes, uh, the United States. Uh, see, from the perspective, when you look at it as a Templar versus the Catholic Church thing, the history of California kind of comes into a, a even more focus. Now, we know that um, the first Europeans to so-called, you know, colonize, so they let it sit for 200 years and apparently didn't do anything in that respect. But, you know, Spain had California for a while, right? And then, of course, uh, when, when they give all that up, Mexico takes California, takes control of California. And then of course the United States after that. Now people, people usually look at the history of California as, Oh, okay. So it was these three different nations, nations, you know, these uh, political reasons that California passed from one hand to the other. Well, no, what you had was it, it, it was then, and it always has been Templars versus the Catholic church. How so you go back to the idea that the Templars came here to the Americas before Columbus. Okay. And if they had, 150 or 200 years to explore, well, they certainly could have made it to California. So the, so let's say you had Templars who either made it to California or had the information, the ancient information that was left behind by those who had made it to California. Okay, so you had a Templar interest in that. Now you have these explorers like Juan Cabrillo who are in secret, they're Templars, okay? So armed with the Templar information, uh, in the employ of Spain, and, and I think that the Templars gave um, the, the New World discovery to Spain kind of as a gift. I go into that, what I mean by that, um, because I think they thought it would be in their interests if Spain 
They didn't want France because France had betrayed them, remember. I, I think the Templars thought that Spain would, would you know, kind of have their interests in, in mind. So, the, but what happens is, and I talk, I'm giving you a little bit about the new book here, a little teaser, a little tidbit. Um, Queen Isabella goes off and surprises them by telling the Pope that he can be in on this. So you got the Catholic Church going, rubbing their hands together, going, aha, we can get this piece of the new world. And that, of course, would include the California. And um, so you have Spain exploring, you know, California via this expedition led by a Templar. You have a Templar looking for certain things in the Templarist. But unfortunately, the church has to tag along. Uh, I see these church, these, these priests, the, the Vatican representatives or, or the priests that were on these ships and expeditions. I see them as similar to the political officers that the Soviet Union would put on every military vessel and military base over there. They just wanted to save all those native souls, you know, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, they were like the, they were like the political commissars. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So they are there in the and then what happens is the Jesuits get into the mix and kind of this rests. They make a move, and I go into this in detail in the book, but they make a move that rests control of California away from the Templars, in, in, in my opinion. And then the Templars end up turning around and doing kind of pulling it back in because with the... Uh, with the United States taking California. Now, what did Spain and Mexico have in common that puts them on the same side? Catholic nations. So it's not that, you know, one country gave it to another country, Spain to Mexico. No, no, no. You can't look at it that way. Those are both Catholic nations. So it was in church control during Spain and Mexico's tenure, really. Okay. But the Masons come up, or sorry, the Templars come along and, um, Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., they're behind the United States getting control of California through Freemasonry, because as we know, the Templar influence in the creation of, of Freemasonry, right? And, and the United States, you could, it's been argued by, you know, many people is the first Freemason nation, you know, mm -hmm. the first nation founded by Freemasons, and that's essentially Templars. So Freemasonry backing the United States, they come in and get control of California to make it a state and such. And of course they use a guy who's kind of an asshole. That's John Fremont. And, uh, but, uh, they do it 
And then I see where the church found a way through politics to get control of California again, essential control. And again, I go into the details of this in the new book. So, um, and, and this all, this all goes back to information that was seized from that fourth crusade. Cause they're looking for something that is in California that is precious to them. Uh, well, it, it, that, well, no, they're looking for something in the geophysical terrain and possibly, possibly uh, remnants of um, the, a lost civilization. Because so, you have the stories that California, that, that some of the coastal areas might have been the site of colonies of whatever this Lemuria civilization actually was. So um, that idea goes way back. Okay, so it's, that's a that's a great segue to the next question I wanted to ask was, you know, what are we dealing with when we're talking about, and we've probably talked about this before, but what are we dealing with when we're talking about like an ancient civilization? Because I mean, this is always kind of the fun stuff to speculate. Yeah, I think that there's going back to what I said about the Book of Mormon. In the parts of the Book of Mormon, when it talks about the refugees that came over from Israel or you know Egypt, the Middle East, um, and and landed in South America, the Americas, uh, and I and I said I think there's a nugget of truth in there somewhere. I think the same thing about the uh, Lemuria, the idea of Lemuria. I, I think there was, uh, you know, a civilization lost to a sense that will explain why we have these existing legends and ideas of Lemuria. And the same for Atlantis, too. I, and, and I think these were different cultural, um, the, these were different cultures that were at the same level of civilization, you know, technologically speaking. And um, I, I don't have a problem at all with the idea, particularly if they were a seafaring civilization, that we're going to find and that we're, people are finding um, relics of, you know, colonies, outlying colonies of this Pacific civilization, which we can call Lemurian, just, you know, for simplicity's sake. And um, that would have been part of this information um, captured during the Fourth Crusade. Well, I'm usually pretty skeptical about a lot of this lost civilization, the America stuff. But I mean, whatever one thinks uh, about the reality of it, you cannot ignore that so many of these historical figures have been like almost possessed by this idea and that that has shaped um, all these stories. It's shaped the, the country and the hemisphere and it's creative religions like Mormonism. I mean, whatever one thinks personally about it, it's still, you, you can't ignore how influential these ideas have been on creating uh, this, this country. Right. And, and you, you've got to, because this is so prevalent, right. And because so many of these figures and so many of these scholars have, have suspected this and interpreted things as this, as being this way, or this being fact, you know, you have to consider, okay, what if there's a nugget of truth to this? What if there is something baseline in there that 
um, is the truth that kind of supports the basic idea. Maybe the details, the way these various scholars, you know, have presented them, maybe maybe those details aren't accurate. Of course, a lot of them are not going to be, but there might be that there is a foundation of truth to these ideas. And where would, where would um, this thread have begun? Where would anyone have gotten the idea of this to begin with? Well, these uh, maps, charts, and ancient manuscripts that had been stored in the Library of Alexandria that then went on to the Imperial Archives in Constantinople. Um, you know, that's where people would have found out about this, and uh, it would have worked its way, you know, down through the years. Absolutely fascinating. It is. It, it, it really, when you dig into this, um, it's kind of hard to put it down, so to speak. It, it's because it, it just makes so much practical sense when, when you take a look at, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the historical perspective of, of how people could have found this information and, um, the idea, for instance, when you talk about the Lemurian civilization, uh, people get this idea that, you know, you're talking about these um, uh, anti-gravity flying machines and submarines and, and uh, this, this kind of Hollywood or, or New Age fantasy version of the civilization. But David Childress uh, has written a very interesting book uh, titled The Lost World of the Calm. And, you know, yes, David has written about things like I just described, but in this particular book, he does an excellent bit of scholarship and he presents the idea of this, the seagoing civilization. No, they don't have, you know, electrogravitic submarines or flying saucers. No, 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 nothing, nothing <laughs> like that at all. They just simply, they just simply had the resources and the means to sail the seas. And, the, and they just simply, you know, figured out how to build seafaring vessels and they understood navigation. And I don't think it's crazy to think that somebody in the ancient world had figured out longitude and latitude before, you know, our modern world figured it out. Right. Uh, longitude and latitude could very easily have been one of those lost technology things, I say with air quotes, that will again was seized in the fourth crusade for example so you know well there's the what is it the perry reese map exactly the perry reese map being an example of um you know what we're talking about it doesn't mean they had to have nuclear submarines and satellites in the skies to understand they rode dinosaurs maybe yeah well see that's the thing is that people think that there is I'm kidding about the dinosaur thing when I said maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> There's going to be somebody out there that says, Bosley said they rode dinosaurs. Well, it's just a, yeah, right. There's that popular um, conception of quote unquote Atlantis that I think has just come down through it's like some silly popular culture or through, you know, some, some cult group out there or something like that. But just like, you know, I really think that what Plato was talking about, it was something that was like an amalgamation of all these different civilizations that had just kind of come and gone. It was almost just like this, this, this memory that just got jumbled together and that 
you know, I mean, he could have been talking about Crete, but he also could have been talking about whatever happened in the Black Sea. You know, there's evidence well, that I, there was a big flood I, there. And I disagree with with I think he was I think I, I think the truth is somewhere between the popular conception or misconception of of, of Atlantis and the dry um, conclusion that it was just right. Crete and a flood of the right. Mediterranean. I I, I I I think the truth is somewhere between those two. Um, Crete and I'm not saying you're saying that this is the, the the way it is, but you know, you mentioned it. And whenever I see that, mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh gosh, the, the bean counting academics are at it again. You know um, they just can't handle, you know, anything that's not their, uh, their uh, dogmatic scripture, but uh, uh, certainly there's a more realistic way to look at these, the, the idea of a lost ancient civilization Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you, when, you, when you look at it from a more uh, practical point of view, I think it becomes um, more uh, uh, plausible for people who might otherwise doubt it when all they've seen is this fantasy idea, right. you know. Well, I always say that the search for the mother civilization is really, a, I think more than anything, it's a spiritual quest. And I really don't think part we of it, should... Sure. I really don't think we should expect the academic establishment or the really young science of archaeology to necessarily, um, you know, give us validation in that. Um, a lot of people get really upset about it, but you know, I don't. I, I think it's kind of a, a separate thing. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think that um, I think that there's definitely a spiritual element to the search for these things. But, but I also think that um, there were these civilizations. For, for example, you know, you've heard the story in the 1908 uh, Arizona newspaper about the, you know, alleged uh, city in the Grand Canyon. That was oh, yeah. the cabins, you know, how that's reported. Now, when uh, going back to David Childress's book on the com, if you recall in that article, the guy in the 1908 article, was describing the best way he could describe it. It was he was describing it as Egyptian, but when you get the details, it's not quite Egyptian. Well, Childress points out that the Kham, they were a civilization that was an amalgamation of uh, uh, you know elements from East India, from you know what we call Thailand today, and. Um, it, and there was a connection to Egypt, um, both a practical and a cultural one. So you mix those three cultures up into its own culture, and you get a group of explorers of the calm who, let's say, establish an outpost in Arizona in the Grand Canyon, and might not their outpost, its design and architecture and interior, interior decor, might that not look to a guy in 1908 like it could possibly be Egyptian? So as Childress argues in this book, what if it's not an Egyptian, you know, uh, colony or city or whatever, necropolis that they found? What if it's actually this Kham culture, C-H-A-M, from which, by the way, comes the name of the country, Cambodia, and Vietnam was part of this civilization and uh, and on and so forth. So, um you know, that's another way 
of, and I like this. I, what, I'm a real advocate of David's book, Lost World of the Calm, because I think it, um, it, has, it does a great service to the argument of the Lost Pacific, for the Lost Pacific uh, culture, civilization, uh, because it does take this practical approach and, you know, it, uh, this more uh, showing how this fits in with the ancient ancestors of our current Indonesian cultures, for example, you know, so for what that's worth. So this brings me to something that I've been seeing a lot recently in the field of the, um, I guess, quote unquote, alternative, I guess, speculative community. And that's Tataria. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yes. So I had, you know, I had not heard about this till uh, a friend of ours actually asked us, have you heard of this Tataria thing? And I was like, no, what is Tataria? And he explained it. And my immediate thought to me was like, it just seems like it's some kind of weird Russian propaganda tool. Right. Um, and then there's another aspect of this whole Tataria thing where they bring in like pictures from world's fairs and say that that was part of Tataria. <laughs> yeah. When like you could easily go and find that online and you know, like here in Nashville, there's a, uh, there's a Parthenon and I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure it's not from Tataria. <laughs> oh, they claim that it is though. They claim that it right. was, that right. we're being told a lie, that it's a big cover up, and, and it's, it's, I mean, I personally, uh, looked up the, the 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 county records from the time that that was built and showed a Tataria guy. Okay, here's the county record. Here it is. Here's a photocopy <laughs> of it. Here's the details of when that was built and why. And basically, the response is, "Nap, it's uh, essentially it's a conspiracy." To uh, so, what they do is they present something that, on the face of it, proves to be, you know, you can prove that it's not true. And what they do is they fall back on, oh, no, it is true, but it's a conspiracy. Um, all those documents, those county records and stuff, that those were all contrived. Those were, uh, they, they either lied on them or they've been faked. And it, so you can never disprove what they're saying. Yeah. That is quite the organized conspiracy. That would uh, <laughs> take a lot. Well, you know, that leads to uh, that, that Davidson County was in on it the whole time. <laughs> exactly. Sure. And, and, you know, when you point this out, when I hear we're getting a good chuckle over it, cause it is laughable. You know, some people, they get offended. They say, well, how can you talk about the things you talk about and advocate what you advocate and not advocate this and agree with this? And what this is, is um, the, the generation the, the first generations that grew up with this uh, everybody gets a participation trophy uh, philosophy, um, they finally came of age and, and they're finally adults and stuff. And so and they went to YouTube University. They went to YouTube University on top of that. But what it is is that they, they latch on to something. You know, they advocate a particular idea, hypothesis, theory. And... <clears throat> They they don't think it's fair with air quotes around that word when other people 
use critical thinking and discernment to point out, uh, hey, you're wrong there. This was built in such and such year for the such and such fair or whatever. They think that you're not playing along. You're supposed to give them their participation trophy. In other words, all theories, all hypotheses, no matter how ridiculous or no matter how dis- easily disproven, they all have to be entertained. They all have to be respected. And you're not supposed to say anything or, God forbid, you be critical or mock you know, any foolishness because you're, you're not giving them their participation trophy. And um, so what they've done is they've fallen back on, oh, it's conspiracy that if, if you disprove with documentation, then they tell you that documentation isn't accurate. It isn't true. Yeah. You, you can't win. I mean, that seems to be the, I mean, that seems to be kind of like the go-to explanation for all kind of conspiracy stuff these days. Anyway, I mean, you know, I mean, QAnon is doing the same kind of stuff. I mean, uh, as far as Tataria goes though, because I, I really want to, I don't, I don't, I don't completely understand it. Uh, they're saying that there's this. I mean, I know what the Tatars were. I know what the who the Mongols were. Uh, they're saying that I guess there was this big inland Asian empire at one time, and that somehow, like, how exactly do the pictures of the world's fairs <laughs> tie into Tataria? They were colonies, I think. Yeah, it's it's uh, so and and so you know you want to ask them. Okay, so what you're saying is these these structures from this World's Fair were actually standing and, and existed uh, when Columbus arrived. You know, you're, you're saying they existed. You know, before that. Um, so wow. what happens with the people who um, uh, up until this World's Fair? were people in, you know, in our modern era that were living in the area. What did they think about these buildings? Are they right. in on the, on the conspiracy too? Did they I agree think, yeah. never to talk about them? The thing that's really interesting to me is I think without knowing it, they're really picking up on something. And that is that that time period, the late 19th century was really magical. Yes. And it was, you know, so bingo. It was so positive and, and such an optimistic outlook post Civil War regeneration that um, it seems alien. It seems so alien to us now. Oh, and and what you just described was the reason the twenty, in my opinion, was the reason the twentieth century happened the way it did. Yeah, things were uh, were going so upward and forward that those who decide the direction civilization is going to go and the ups and downs decided we can't have this. This is my opinion that the, the, the whole getting into the world war era, getting into the globalism, it was decided by they who decide these things. There, there you go. I'm throwing a bone to the conspiracy crowd um, that no, 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 no. We've got to break this optimism. We, we, we cannot allow this. This this cannot be. And that's why I think the tw- it, it was greatly a reason why, not the only reason, but greatly a reason why the 20th century happened the way it did. If, if the 20th century, I want you to think about something. If the 20th century um, had happened the way the late 19th century was going, even with, you know, whatever social 
issues had to be worked out or whatever, but you know what I'm talking about. If the 20th century had stayed on course with the way the late 19th century was headed, imagine the different century we would have had mm-hmm. in a good way. I mean, well, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of counterfactual history, especially like with world war one, that if maybe we, if world war one had never happened, would it have been a better world? I mean, I've, I've, I've definitely heard that, that yeah. theory. That and, I, and I think this was a nefarious and just insidious reaction to the the um, the direction the 19th century was going. Well, even just in the interest of you know controlling wealth, and if if people like Tesla were basically inventing free energy, I mean that's the enemy of scarcity. Yeah, God forbid, right? Wealth so, warning, yeah. And uh, and the optimism, God forbid, that uh, you know so many you know of the masses have optimism Um, because with optimism what happens you know things like oops the american revolution and and yes i know there were players behind the american revolution making that happen but still that one's the american revolution was it's still the um the 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 globalists the controllers the elites they still felt the sting of that because what it happened what happened as a result of that was um, no matter what was going on at the big political level behind the scenes, what did it result in? It resulted in the common people being confident and feeling like, hey, wait a minute, you know, I, I don't I don't have to listen to a king. I don't I don't really have to, you know, I I can, you know, be part of what the government says and does. And that was an offshoot that the elites did not like. That did not go according to their plan. And uh, when Napoleon embraced that, um, that idea, you know, yeah, Napoleon crowned himself emperor. There's interesting stuff behind that. Um, but uh, and, and he conquered these countries that, by the way, were declaring war on him. You realize there were, I think, eight, eight or nine Napoleonic Wars and he only declared one. Hmm, why did they call them Napoleonic Wars? Anyway, I digress. But when he would establish his form of government in these conquered areas, it was much more based on the principles of what the, you know, the United States have been based on. It was much, it was much better for the common people than the previous, the the monarchies had been for them. And that's really why they hated Napoleon and wanted to stop him because he was giving the people a, a better world to live in and they didn't want that and this idea continued through the 19th century even though they found a way to get rid of napoleon it the idea still continued and that's what you saw at the end of the 19th century the the ultimate result of the common people finally for the first time in known history really wielding confidence and again god forbid so they decided the money people, the elites, what have you, they decided that now the 20th century, by God, is going to go a different direction and it's going to be the direction we say it. And we've got to break their confidence. And so then we spent from World War One up to 9-11 just, just one confidence-breaking thing after another, like, like, like it was some type of psyop, as the conspiracy people love to bandy about. Everything's a psyop now. McDonald's changes its ketchup recipe. It's a psyop. <laughs> I, I, I don't know about well, you guys, but I'm getting sick of hearing that. You know, um, 
it's like, come on, guys, not every single thing. Well, didn't you used to run psyops, Walter? You no, <laughs> no, but there are there are tactics and things in psyops that that um, you know come in handy when you're doing perception management stuff or when you're doing um, asset handling. Nick. Well, I think my point in saying that is well, that I'm trying to fool an enemy. My point in saying that is that you you understand what a real psyop looks like. As, as opposed uh, the, to the, the conspiracy scholars, it, do my, there's some point. really good ones out there. Sure, that, sure. You know, they, absolutely. You know. But uh, my thing is that I think in the last year, and the reasons are obvious, we know the reasons, but last year was the apex of uh, just, you know, conspiracy land really going nutty with every little thing. Um, you know, the, the, like you said before, the Q people, the, mm-hmm. um, I remember, I remember last year, um, when people were, and now this was only like two weeks into the COVID, the first COVID lockdown thing. Okay. Two weeks. And people were already showing these videos of the militaries taking over the cities. Here's oh, the trains yeah. with all the tanks. And I right, remember looking at right. one and pointing out myself to these people. Hey, wait a minute. That video is three years old from <laughs> a, a unit at Camp Pendleton returning from the Middle East. And their, their equipment is was taken from the ship, put on the train. And it's heading out of town, not into San Diego. But people were using that as this was just taken the other day, you know, or today. And you point that out. It's like, people, you're going nuts. Video taken completely out of context. Exactly. Exactly. And, and there were some people you just couldn't tell them otherwise. Um, they'd get mad at you. And, and the Q people are that way. You know, the, the angry response or the, oh, you're just an ignorant fool. You don't know what you're talking about. All I can say is that Kool-Aid must taste really good. Well, I don't know, Walter, if you're aware of Eric Davis. He's also there in California. We had him on. Yeah. We talked about how everybody kind of at a mass consciousness level in 2020 went into their own kind of chapel perilous because all of a sudden you're stuck at home with nothing to do. You get on the internet, you go on YouTube, you go down the rabbit holes. And so like all of a sudden everything becomes much more popular yeah, as a conspiracy than it used to. Yeah. And yeah, you, I remember, I remember actually, in I was late March, early April, you know, I was doing my own kind of like, you know, just isolation thing. Surfiel sends me this this um, thing on Twitter, this guy talking about how, you know, this is it. The storm is coming, you know, the QAnon storm and all this. And I was like, I was like, man, this is ridiculous. But but also the other thought that I had about it was like, you know what? I would rather it be the storm than it be the coronavirus. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I would rather it be, it would be that, that the coronavirus is fake and this is actually what it's all about. They're getting the kids from underneath the, <laughs> from underneath the chambers underneath New York city. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I, I think that there's just gotta be a distinction between something like what you do and the kind of like looking at things and doing a whole bunch of research, healthy speculation and, and healthy speculation. Yeah. And, and admitting when you're speculating and it, and, and the number one thing I try to do this 
Yep. But the number one thing that a lot of people in this field need to do is start having the maturity to throw in there, hey, I could be wrong. But they won't do that because admitting that you could be wrong gets less clicks on your social media. It gets less clicks on your podcast. You know what I mean? With a lot of yep. these people. So they're yep. not going to say they're wrong. Um, I, You know, I took it was both and amusing um, early on in the lockdown when it was clear, you know, w- with all these people, I mean, that clearly had never had they never spent a moment alone contemplating anything. It seemed like as soon as they got solitude and couldn't leave their houses, they were all going crazy. The sil- the silence was deafening. Yeah. Have, have you never just had a day where you stayed at home and read a book or thought about anything? Does does every waking minute of your life have to be outside socializing, interacting? And I feel sorry for those people, because to me, um, that, that's uh, kind of feel sorry when I see adults behaving the way adults were behaving last year. It, it's it, 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 it's it's aggravating because, you know, you, you just you want to it made me impatient. That's not the word, but um, it, it just, ugh, ugh. I was disgusted. I'm like, come on, get a grip. And some of us kind of thrived. I mean, I, I felt like I really thrived last year. Oh, I, you know, me, of course, I, for six months of it, I was dealing with chemo. So I had kind of a pass to be able to lay on my butt and watch TV and read. But, but, you know, you get the idea. I, even if I wasn't going through cancer treatment, I spent, my life right now, um, things are open and st- and, and I'm clear to the cancer. Stuff, but my life right now is pretty close to what it was during the lockdowns last yeah. year because, you know, I I spend a lot of time at home. That's where I do my, you know, my scholarly part of my research. And uh, so to me, it wasn't such a big shock to people like us. I don't yeah. think it was such a big shock to have to deal with, but seeing those other people out there, the muggles as they call them in Harry Potter, it, you know, it, 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 like the whole phenomena with the Karens. I mean, come on, people get a grip on, on your behavior. That's embarrassing. These people that were freaking out and getting triggered. Yeah. And, um, I mean, there's a lot of precedents for, um, you know, people just having to hold up for a little bit. I mean, People back in frontier times, I mean, you're just hanging out with maybe you, maybe your nuclear family, maybe just you, and, you know, you pretty much chilled inside, and that might be a a few years, you know? (laughs) Yeah, you know, and hopefully somebody doesn't pick up an axe and wipe out the whole family, but, you know. (laughs) Thank you, Rodney Dangerfield. That's a great line. (laughs) I've always, that's always been one of my favorite routines. He was a quiet man. You know, it's like one day he picks up an ax and wipes out the whole family. People say he was a quiet man, a real quiet man. <laughs> that is, that is great. Yeah. I, I, I totally, uh, I totally concur. And just the whole thing about, um, you know, when you're talking about like the elites and all this type of thing, it's like, you know, I, I still believe that there is such a thing. It's just that all that has been just so just like, you know, it's been conspiracy theory has and all that stuff has been weaponized, but it doesn't mean that there's some truth to some of it. Right. That there's not some truth to some of it. You mean, yeah. Right. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you on that. This is where, like, when people get upset at me when they see me criticizing and kind of with humor, kind of mocking certain things, those are the things that I feel have crossed a line into the absurd and the ridiculous and need to be pointed out as such um, so that, you know, people can get back on track with rational thought. But I still... I'm still with people on the idea. Yes, I think there's ETs that have visited and continue to visit this planet. That yes, there are conspiracies. My God, history's full of conspiracies. Yes, there are, you know, lost civilizations. And, and, you know, I mean, come on. It's still a mystery uh, on uh, about, you know, who built these megalithic structures. I mean, that's still kind of an amazing thing for, you know, being so old. Um, but it doesn't mean that every idea that comes down the pike, you know, is, is going to be right, is going to be accurate, or is even going to be reasonable. And you have to be able to say, now, wait a minute, some of this stuff, oh, you've gone too far now, this extreme is a little bit nutty, and that's not likely. So let's kind of, you know, if we're going to have a serious conversation about it, let's rein it in a little bit, you know, to the more likely practical and, and no, we don't have to treat any and all ideas and theories and hypotheses with the same respect, because some, quite frankly, like the, you know, the thing we were talking about with Tataria and, you know, this, this World's Fair exhibit that we know when and it was built, you know, the, the idea that that's actually an ancient structure and there's a big conspiracy. Yeah, that's, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, you have to actually embrace the mystery and not have to have an answer. There you go. Yeah, embracing the mystery, you know, but but here's the thing with that particular example. There's no mystery to the Parthenon in Nashville. Right. There's no mystery <laughs> whatsoever. So let's quit making a mystery around it. Sometimes I think there's people that they just they want to manufacture something to talk yeah, about. They yeah. want to manufacture something that they'll consider their own thing. So they 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 go out on this limb. There's too many real mysteries for, you know, that it's really, you're doing a disservice to yourself if you're just caught up in bullshit. And then when they get upset, when guys like me, you know, will just kind of be dismissive of the Tataria discussion, it's because, well, every time I do take a look at it, it, it very quickly show proves to, you know, to be ridiculous and something that, you know, there, there's nothing new that's convincing you guys have come up with so you know if you want to be taken seriously i would say to them you know let's start seeing some real scholarship let's let's quit you know the stuff you're pointing to sorry doesn't have any legs yeah i can take you to the city archives here we can look at the documents of the people who built it i can take you to the the pyramid grave of the man who envisioned it Uh, there you go uh uh-huh And if you say, oh, well, that's that's all a conspiracy, then it's <laughs> like I'm done talking with you. Exactly. You know? The pyramid grave is part of Tataria. That was one of the colonies okay. of Tataria. This world we live in. But, um, it, it is interesting how that seemed to, at least from my perspective, seemed to, because I was still paying attention to stuff, you know, um, that seemed to have taken a backseat. UFOs seemed to have taken a, a lot of things seemed to have taken a backseat last year. To you know, because of the, the all the COVID conspiracy talk and all the Q stuff going on, obviously it was all about the politics and the uh, and the politics of the COVID issue. 
Well, I'm sure the UFOs of Tartaria will come back. There you go. This goes back to my original point, Walter, the Tartaria. Uh, do you, I mean, do you think that that is, that actually is some kind of Russian propaganda tool? Because the first time I heard about it, I was like, the Russians are really good at this. Yeah. And that's just what it seems like. It's my understanding that, that, uh, an aspect of the Tataria thing can be traced back to Russian propaganda. Excuse me. Let's re- let's correct this. Soviet propaganda. Okay. I like to make that distinction between the Soviet Union and Russia. Yeah. Okay. Because the Russia of today has not been the Soviet Union for thirty years. You know, and and things that were done under the Soviet Union that were not done under Russia prior to that, or and would not have been done. Uh, really need to be credited to all that Soviet crap because that was part of the propaganda you're talking about. You know that it can be the Tataria thing that can be traced back. That was a very specific Soviet thing. That, what was included in some of that was there. There were those who would say, "Oh, well, actually, the Russians invented baseball." Even you know they they would say all sorts of just to counter the West, just to <laughs> counter their rivals, the United States. We we know it's a Freemasonic conspiracy because of the because of the layout of the field. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and because the guy who did it was a Mason, right? I think they know the lodge he was in and everything double day. Um, but, uh, uh, well, wasn't he associated with Blavatsky, right? Wasn't that? Wasn't oh, that, that true? sounds, that yeah. sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. That, that sounds familiar a little bit. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's kind of like the Hanabu saucer thing could be, you know, Ernst Zundel. That's the name people need to look up because that's where this whole mm-hmm. Nazi flying saucer crap started. It was post-war <laughs> and it was propaganda, neo-Nazi propaganda. And uh, the, the Admiral Byrd stuff. God, yeah, that too. You know, um, it, 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 what happens is this stuff gets out there. And um, it becomes so popular. And it's that old thing where if you say it enough times, it'll become true in people's minds. And um, it gets said enough to where people get excited over a particular idea. And they say, well, it, you know what? I, I just, I don't care what anyone says against it. I just, I want to believe this. So I'm going to believe it. And it, they're conspiring to, you know, to uh, keep it from being proven. They're conspiring to keep it down. And they're the ones who are saying this isn't true. And, and people get caught up in that kind of enthusiastic thinking. And um, that's where you get these reactions we're getting. And when you tie that into their emotional survival, it gets worse. Case in point, the Q people. I mean, we, we came up, we have, we, we are in an intense political atmosphere in our nation's history, these last several years. And, um, and, and so people are feeling scared They're, They, they don't know how to react to things. They don't know what's going to happen. They, they feel like they can't predict what's going to happen. So they latch on to things like, you know, some people latch on to, you know, where religion is concerned and that's what they that's what they put their faith in right it's very basic and had these people putting their faith in this q character and of course many of us knew it was bs um but 
you know, you can't tell them because their, their emotional survival is dependent upon their hanging on every word. And they really believe that the world is going to crumble, um, you know, if they don't believe this, if they don't follow this. And there's, you're not going to be able to tell them otherwise while they're in this frame of mind. And um, it's just where we're at now. It's, I mean, look at the crazy puritanical things that are being done with just over things people say, you know, people joke about or, or even just sharing a thought. There's certain, I mean, I, I, this sounds like a cliche, but I, I'm 57 years old and I never thought I'd live to see the day in America when you, there are certain discussions you can't have in a public forum. Discussions, just merely talking about something without the cancel culture possibly coming after you. That is, my God, that is so Soviet. That is so red Chinese. That is so totalitarian um, that it's insane. And that's where we're at now. I mean, that that's where we're at. Yeah, we, we've got to be careful that we don't go from one extreme to the other. I, I think that's all that that's almost like the story of America is just trying to find that trying to find that balance between the, the extreme left and the extreme right. I mean, that's, that's where we are. Yep. And the, the, the yeah. seas are rough right now and the, and the ship is listing, you know, port to starboard back and forth. I, I, I think, it, I think it's okay to point out if someone is saying something that is objectionable or could get people hurt or whatever, but at the same time, it can also go too far. We've, we've got to be, we've got to be reasonable. Yeah, we do. But you first, the, the, there is this phenomenon out there that people are losing it. You know, that whole thing about people being triggered. It's, it's magnified by social media. It's just magnified by it. It's just magnified by it. Uh, it's, 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 I think the 24 hour news channels magnified first magnified it. And then, social media just magnified it even further in-person conversation is so much different yes it is when you have people um who want to be on that iv drip 24 7 and they they tell you you should be on it too you know i i know i know that there's a portion of my audience that i don't have it's a small number i'm not worried about it but but it's measurable there's a portion of the audience that I used to have that because I'm not talking every time I go on my live stream about the hot conspiracy topics of the day that everybody else is talking about ad nauseum that, uh, that that's why they don't watch me anymore well Bosley ain't talking about Q Bosley ain't talking about COVID Bosley ain't talking about all these other things that everybody else is talking about you know uh, uh, feral dark journalist uh, you know who, who coast to go whatever whoever um, so, you know, I don't, I don't want to listen to him because all I want to hear is constantly every time these same subjects. And if he's not talking about these subjects, well, he, he just doesn't know. He's not clued in. He, you know, he's not one of us. He's not aware. Well, no, I'm, I'm aware, but I, you know, I may not agree with the, the, the extent that it goes and, and, you know, you can't live on that stuff all the time or you're going to go crazy. And, uh, to varying degrees, I think a lot of these people um, are suffering, you know, a form of little madness, little craziness. You know, if 
if they're constantly listening to this stuff, constantly on that feed, there's a certain madness that sets in. Maybe low level in most of them, thank God, but it, it is there. All right, Walter, this has been an awesome discussion with you. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, you have several books out, and I want to point out that uh, your books are not available on Amazon. And you can tell everybody, you can tell everybody where they can get. Well, you have still some that are available there on Kindle. Yeah, there's a couple of titles on Kindle that I decided to keep there. I guess Empire of the Wheel may still be on there. No, no, it shouldn't be. All that should okay. be there is Shimmering Light. Uh, Latitude 33 and maybe one of the novels, I think, is all that's there. Um, Empire of the Wheel, and Secret Missions. These are all, all the other books are print on demand at lulu.com. If you go to lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. And in the search bar, put in Walter Bosley or Walter Bosley Author Spotlight, something like that. You'll, you'll get to the pages where the books that I have written and also the books by other authors that I have published. Cause I've been a publisher now for 19 years, believe it or not. And um, I have published other authors over the years and you can find everything that I've written and everything that I've published um, there at uh, lulu.com. And uh, uh, they, they put out a really quality physical book. So it's if you've never tried print on demand i recommend it you got to wait a few days but it's worth the wait okay well this has been excellent walter thank you so much for giving it's been nice spending time with you giving us a little update uh when does uh secret missions five when do you think it's going to drop oh boy i'm trying to do a really good job on it and it ended up being a a bigger monster than uh, i thought in a good way so i right now i'm saying the end of april Ooh, so, okay that's not too okay. far away at all yeah, yeah. We'll, no. we'll probably have you on pretty soon to talk about it cool i look forward to the it weeds. guys i always enjoy talking with you thank you same here uh stay in the line for us walter we're going to close this section out and guys we'll be back with a special announcement about strange realities conference on conspiracy normal Welcome back to Conspiranormal. That's right. That was a nice little discussion with Walter Bosley there about just a grab bag of topics. I think that's the first time that I've had Walter on where we've not specifically spoken about a book. Yeah. And this time we more, I mean, we did talk about just kind of a little review and what he's going to write about in the upcoming book and but we, then we just kind of got started on some other topics, including Tataria. So that was a very, um, very interesting little um, little interview with him. I was really happy to have talked to him and also to know that he's now a cancer survivor and he's okay. Because when I beat the big C. Yeah, when I found that out last year, I was like, oh, man, it's like 2020. The hits keep on coming. It's just like can't lose Walter Bosley because to me, man's a national treasure. I got to... I got the privilege of hanging out with him in San Bernardino about three, about uh, almost three years ago now. And uh, that was probably, 
hung out with him actually a couple of times. Once with Greg Bishop, went to uh, Giant Rock out there in the desert, and then just hung out in San Bernardino. He took me around the San Bernardino Mall, took me, um, uh, showed me like where the events in uh, Empire of the Wheel, the first book, actually occurred. Took me to the grave site there of what he believes is the sacrifice in Empire of the Wheel. So, yeah. Um, always enjoy talking to Walter Bosley. He's probably one of my favorite guests. We've done a bunch of a bunch of interviews with him since I think 2014. I think was the first time I did an interview with him. I think I've been on at least three or four. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think there's been at least three or four. That and that's just the last too. few years. So yeah. Yeah, so we did all the we did all the uh, Empire of the Wheel books. I've done all the um, we've done all the books, uh, the Secret Missions books, Shimmering Light. Uh, there was also we also did we also went back and did an interview about Latitude Thirty Three with him. So I think there's at least two or three that you've been on uh, now. So all right, um, anything that you wanted to add about that? Any your impressions or whatever? We're looking forward to Secret Missions Five. Uh, we touched on a lot of interesting stuff uh, that I'm pretty interested in as far as uh, the Mormons and uh, lost civilizations and the um, secret societies of the conquistadors, uh, some of which we might have a little snippet in the Patreon segment. And uh, yeah, the uh, very interesting as, as usual. So, we want to make an announcement about Strange Realities. Um, you guys have heard, we are actually going to be doing Strange Realities here in Nashville on October 15th, 16th, and 17th. Um, it is going to be a hybrid event, which means that uh, we are going to have some presentations taking place there at SIR Nashville, and we are going to have some taking place um at uh, the people's homes as they present from their homes. So we're doing it kind of like a mix of 2019 and 2020. Mm -hmm. And if you are there, you will be able to see those broadcasted as well. The people are not going to be there physically. We'll have a big screen up. Yes. So we have, now we want to talk about the prices and the prices for strange realities. If you come and there are a limited number of tickets, now that may fluctuate. It just depends on how things go with COVID. It depends on how um, uh, Nashville opens up, closes down, whatever. Uh, we're just watching the situation. Pretty hopeful, though, at this point with the vaccine being around. So if you're coming to Nashville, you want to come to all three days, that is $70. Okay. Uh, if you're coming to Nashville and you only want, are you already here in Nashville and you want to come on either Friday, Saturday, and Sunday individual days, that is twenty five dollars. So you a piece. So you actually get a five dollar discount doing the uh, all three days ticket. Now online only, which we probably think will probably be the most tickets that we sell, is going to be thirty dollars for online. And guys, I'm not going to go over the lineup quite yet. We'll save that maybe for the next episode. Uh, that is being finalized as we speak of who we're going to actually get there. But just know it's a lot of people from last year and also some guests. Everybody that is, that is a part of Strange Realities has been a guest on this show. So um, we want to see you there. We see you in person. 
or interact with you online. Either way, that's October 15th through the 17th. So join us at Strange Realities 2021. All right. If there's anything else, I think we'll go ahead and call it a show. I think that that's a that's a good that was a uh, that was a good one. Uh, next week we're going to have Adam Go Rightly on to talk about his Spy Saucers and Kooks book. So really looking forward to that. Absolutely. So, all right, guys, join us next week on Conspiranorm. please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast.